0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In an ancient citadel, every noble and cleric in the land has gathered by the side of the king to hear him make a proclamation. Anticipation is rife. The king has been on the throne for over 25 years and has no son, only daughters, and no woman had ever ruled over the kingdom. Succession is always the most dangerous moment in the life of any nation, multiplied tenfold when there's no obvious heir. Suddenly, the elderly king began to speak. I am soon to die, he said and I will not have my realm put in danger once I am gone. I name my eldest daughter to be my heir. She will have your loyalty, as I have had yours. She may be a woman, but she will be your next king. After all, a lion cub is just as good, whether male or female. With that, he strode to the door of the room and returned with his eldest daughter on his arm. He led her to a golden throne possession next to his. He seated her and gave her the regalia of kingship. He placed a scepter in her hand, royal robes upon her shoulders and a crown upon her head. With that, he bid her to stand. Turning to his nobles and churchmen, he then declared that she was now his co-ruler. They would rule together for as long as he lived. And then when he died, she would be the sole king. He had done all he could for his daughter. The rest was up to her. and welcome to the other half. Episode 3.6, Tamara of Georgia, King of Kings, Queen of Queens. Last time, we discussed the legendary Chinese folk heroine Mulan, a figure of myth and legend celebrated both in her homeland and enjoyed by cinema-goers around the world. Her story emerged in the oral tradition and in poems and songs written long after her supposed life, and it's widely accepted that she probably didn't exist. Today, we will move 5,000 kilometres west, nearly a 1,000 years forwards, to 12th century Georgia, and to her very real and legendary Queen Tamar the Great. So far in this series, we have examined three women of whom we know relatively little concrete, but today we're moving into more modern times, well, the 12th century at any rate, and covering a woman whose reign is not only fairly well documented, In fact, it's at the heart of a country's golden age. Over the next two episodes, we will seek to understand how she, as a woman, handled ruling a warrior nation in a famously violent part of the world, and why she is considered by many to be the perfect ruler. But before we get into that, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you would like to support the show then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. I also want to encourage you all to follow the show on the Lyceum app and use it to ask me questions and talk to fellow listeners. Links to both are in the show notes. All right, let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The list of female monarchs in medieval Europe and the Near East is sparse. By their very nature, they tend to be controversial, and their accession tended to lead to civil wars and accusations of illegitimacy. Therefore, a definitive list will cause more arguments than your average Christmas lunch. But suffice it to say, there aren't that many. If you're a listener to my previous show, the Queens of England podcast and you have a tolerance for exceptionally bad audio and rapid-fire narration, you may remember me talking about Empress Matilda, the first woman to claim rulership over all England. Her father, King Henry I, had no surviving sons and needed an heir to ensure the stability of the kingdom after his death. So he gathered his nobles around him and made them swear fealty to Matilda. Unfortunately for both, most of the nobles reneged on their word as soon as Henry died, Causing decades of civil war, which only ended when Matilda agreed to give up her claim in favour of her son. It was this kind of outcome that haunted the nightmares of sunless kings and made them take extraordinary steps to ensure that a male heir took on the throne after his death. However, about half a century after Henry I tried and failed to get his vassals to accept a female ruler, King Georgi III of Georgia aim to do the exact same thing. But he succeeded. Today we'll see how he and she did it. But first let's do some background. Georgia has been described as a nation perpetually on the edge of empires. It is at the heart of the Caucasus, a region bordered by the Black Sea to the west, the Caspian Sea to the east, Russia to the north and Turkey to the south. It contains the modern nations of Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. Those of you familiar with Greek myth may know the story of Jason and the Argonauts. They undertook a great quest to obtain the legendary Golden Fleece from Colchis, an ancient state on the eastern edge of the Black Sea that now sits in western Georgia. This legend is probably based on the great mineral wealth of Colchis, which made it a popular destination for Greek traders and adventurers. The Romans conquered Colchis in the 1st century BCE, but the eastern part of what is now Georgia, then called the Kingdom of Iberia, was constantly fought over by the Roman and Persian empires throughout the ancient and early medieval period, being variously a vassal, independent buffer state, and a conquered province. It was converted to Christianity by the female preacher St Nino in the 4th century but like so many areas in the region, it was unable to resist the Arab-conquering tide of the 7th century, seeing part of its territory lost to Muslim rule. The Arabs formed an emirate in these lands, centred on what is now the Georgian capital of Tbilisi. The remaining Christian-held part of the country was constantly subject to attack by the Byzantines to the west and the Armenians to the south for the next few centuries. However... The waning powers of their major rivals in the region saw, for the first time, a united Georgia emerge in 1108 under the Bagrationi dynasty. This dynasty's greatest ruler was King David, sometimes westernised to King David. He became known as David the Restorer, or also the Builder. His conquests and political manoeuvrings brought Georgia to its greatest territorial extent to that time, stretching across the Caucasus from the Black to the Caspian Seas, a far greater territory than Georgia currently holds to this day. David was greatly helped by the turmoil in the region caused by the First Crusade, which arrived in the Middle East in 1097, and somehow blundered its way to conquering a small empire in the Holy Land. This distracted the Seljuk Turks on David's southern border, and gave him regional allies who saw their fellow Christian as a useful partner. Still, he also helped himself by being a remarkable military commander, beating armies that sometimes outnumbered him as much as four to one. The years after David's death were somewhat less glorious, as murderous intricate court and Muslim successes against the Crusader states saw Georgia attacked from without and within. There were all the things that you might expect in a country under pressure. Murder, rebellion and infighting which meant that when the III came to the throne, he was determined to go on the offensive on all fronts. Against enemies abroad, he launched a series of campaigns, most notably against Muslim-controlled Armenia and Persia, and brutally put down many rebellions, including by his nephew Demetrius. This latter rebellion was backed by many powerful nobles, who saw an opportunity to limit the power of the Georgian monarchy by overthrowing Giorgi and placing their own puppet on the throne. However, the rebellion was defeated, and when the wannabe king was captured, he was blinded, castrated, and saw most of his family killed. This was a common practice by Eastern empires at this time, as, by tradition, a man could not be king if he was not quote-unquote whole. The whole thing was rendered moot, however, as Demetrius died not long after. This kind of repression made Georgie rather unpopular, but he did manage to hold on to power for nearly 30 years. However, he did not manage to have a son, only two daughters, the eldest of whom was Tamar. We're not sure when Tamar was born, but it was sometime around 1160. Her mother was Burjikhan, an Alan princess from the region that now makes up North Ossetia. Her name... From which we get the modern Tamara, is a Hebrew one meaning date or palm tree, and was chosen to emphasise the Bagrationis family claim to be descended from the biblical King David. Not much is known about her upbringing, but one would imagine that her father, after accepting he would have no sons, groomed her in rulership. She would be educated in geopolitics, exposed to meetings of state, and introduced to all the key players. Now, what's interesting me in all of this is that her father did not attempt to marry her off. It was typical, when a woman was the only heir, to marry her off to a husband who would be the real power behind the throne. This had been the case with Melisandre of Jerusalem and, to an extent, Matilda in England. The idea being that although the right to rule came through the woman, her husband would be the one to take real power. Remember that the law at the time was that the wife was the property of the husband. All that was hers was his, not the other way around, and that would have included her crown. Giorgi clearly believed both in his daughter's right and ability to rule, and so felt it essential that she be the one to inherit the throne and not have her power diluted by a husband. But Georgia had never been ruled by a woman and in 12th century Europe and the Near East, it was highly unusual. Many did not think that a female ruler could ever be legitimate, while others saw it as an ideal opportunity to try and seize power for themselves. This led Georgi to look all the way back to ancient Roman times to find a solution. Back in Imperial Rome, it was customary for an elderly emperor, as he felt the weight of years pressing on his shoulders, to appoint his heir to be co-emperor while he still lived. This is, for example, how Nerva handed power to Trajan, and likewise Trajan to Hadrian. This was done for two reasons. First, it gave the heir experience of rulership while being supervised by a more experienced hand. But, more importantly, it meant that when the elder emperor died, there was no real question of succession. The other guy was already there. Unlike in England, when Henry had merely extracted a promise from his nobles, Georgi, as we saw in the introduction to the episode, would physically crown Tamar as his co-ruler himself. She was, however, not crowned as Queen of Georgia. Today we know that the word Queen can mean two things, either the wife of a ruling king or as a queen regnant, i.e. queen in her own right. But back in the day, things were simpler queen only meant the wife of the king. This meant that when a woman did take the throne, they needed a different name. In England, Matilda was named Lady of the English, while Tamar was crowned as King of Georgia. Now, you can look at this in two ways. Either you can see it as Tamar being masculinized in order to make her role appear legitimate, or you can see it as the role of king itself being degendered. She was crowned as co-king in 1178 at the age of 18, and ruled alongside her father for the next six years. The events of this period are very lightly covered by contemporary chroniclers, which suggests that Kiyogi's aggressive foreign and domestic campaigns had done their jobs. King Yogi III of Georgia died on Easter Sunday 1184, but despite all of his work to ensure a smooth transition to his daughter, as we all know, carefully laid plans rarely survive contact with the enemy. The first person to hear of the king's death was his sister, Rusudan, and she moved quickly to ensure that she would be the one to guide her niece's hand. To avoid civil war, nobility placed three demands on Tamar. First, she had to be crowned for a second time, this time by a cleric, with her receiving the regalia of office from her nobles. This was symbolically important, as it meant that she was receiving her right to rule not from a king, but the senior nobles and clerics. Therefore, she was answerable to them and not to him. The second was that her aunt Rissadan would be named as regent. Now Tamar was not in her minority, she was in her late 20s, but as an unmarried woman, she was seen legally as a minor and so needed an experienced married woman to guide her. And then finally, she had to sack a number of her father's unpopular ministers, many of whom had been foreign or low-born, and replace them with Georgian nobles. Tamar, as we will see, was inclined towards peaceful compromise rather than violent confrontation with her own people and so acquiesced to these demands, at least in the short term. However, she had no intention of having her ability to rule constrained and so worked up a plan to show everyone who was boss. Emboldened by Tamar's concessions to noble demands, a faction at court sought to embed aristocratic control over the queen by ensuring that she could not take any decision without their say. This involved the building of a new palace next to the royal palace, where the nobles would gather, a kind of proto-parliament. This would not be a chamber of mere yes-men. In fact, they would be the ones making the decisions and passing the laws. The Queen's only role would be to rubber-stamp their decisions. Tamar refused, as one might expect, and had the faction's leader, Arslan Kutlu, arrested. There was then some fierce negotiation that saw everyone involved in the plot pardoned, including Kutlu, though he was deprived of his lands and estates. Tamar also did agree to the formation of a council of state to advise her, but the parliament idea was dropped. This new council could discuss policy, but her decision, and only hers, would carry the day. This would be no Georgian Magna Carta. So one nil to Tamar. The next thing she had to deal with was the church, since Duran Patriarch Mikhail Marianiste. He was the head of the church in Georgia and had supported her accession to the throne, but in return she was forced to make him her High Chancellor or Chief Minister. This made him incredibly powerful, which was, you know, unideal but a price she was willing to pay, again, in the short term, if it meant that she could keep her throne. Tomarvo was determined to cut him down to size. She called a general synod and tried to get her to replace as patriarch with someone else, but they refused, only agreeing to let her appoint some of her supporters as bishops. Fortunately for Tomarvo, her disappointment was assuaged by Mikhail's death a year later. Another fight she lost with the church was in the matter of her marriage. It was vital that Georgia have an heir, preferably a boy, to secure the succession in case of Tamar's early death, as well as someone who could lead Georgia's armies into battle. Now, we talked before about how Tamar had avoided marriage before taking the throne, so she could consolidate power in her own hands. But, unlike, say, Elizabeth I of England, she couldn't avoid the issue forever. Now, there weren't many great choices out there. The Byzantine Empire was on the decline, and they had no desire to nail their colours to a sinking ship. Obviously, she couldn't marry a Muslim, which made Kievan Rus, an ancestor state to modern Russia, as the obvious destination for her husband. Her nobles chose a dashing young Russian duke called Yuri Bogolubsky, the son of a grand duke who possessed an enviable military record. He was at that moment in exile, so he had no title or lands of his own, but no matter, he was the highest-ranking Russian they could find. Tamar was decidedly unkeen by this idea. She didn't know this guy and was worried about the haste in which this man was being forced upon her as a husband. She had no intention of seeing some dude she had never met come over and try and take over her kingdom, which was hers, by right. She is quoted as having said, I know nothing of this foreign man's accomplishments, nor of his leadership or his nature and behaviour. Give me some time to get to know him. Aunt Rissidan, however, completely overrode her objections, sent for the duke and insisted on Tamar marrying him. Yuri, then, was crowned as king. But Tamar was named King of Kings, Queen of Queens, meaning, crucially, that she still outranked him, technically. Even so, or really because of that, the marriage was a total disaster. Yuri was indeed a strong military commander, and led George's armies to victory in campaigns in Armenia, but he was a terrible fit personally for Tamar. Tamar was a bit of a Theresa May. She was calm, measured, naturally austere, Yuri was different. He was flash, he liked to drink and sleep around and do basically everything and anything to personally humiliate his wife. A bit like Theresa May's successor then. One chronicler alleged that Yuri was, quote, utterly debauched and utterly depraved. He also took full advantage of the one thing he could do that she could not, which was personally command armies he cultivated a great deal of support with the senior fighting men of the kingdom. The very people whose support would be essential if he was to, say, I don't know, want to launch a crew and dethrone his wife? So the match certainly did not work on a personal level. In addition, some historians have claimed that the marriage was never consummated, and certainly the two never had children. Which meant that, dynastically too, it was a failure. Georgi certainly knew who he blamed for this and publicly reproached Tamar for her supposed inability to bear him any children. However, the fact that she would later have kids and he did not suggests that he was the one that was firing blanks. Partisan Tamar supporters in the surviving record go a bit further, accusing him in fact of being a homosexual. Whether that is true or not, it is certain that on a personal level too, the marriage was a failure which only left the foreign policy aspect. And that too seems to have been fruitless. Over the time of the marriage, it does not appear that Russia and Georgia became closer in any way diplomatically. For all these reasons, Tamar decided that Yuri had to go. But executing this would take some careful planning. If she had acted like her father, she would simply have had him killed. But that was not Tamar's way. Like I said before, she wants to rule in a different, less violent manner. Tamar went to her senior clerics and demanded that they annul the marriage. Although Giyogi had some support within senior fighting men, his debauchery and humiliation of the Queen had alienated from the church and other nobles. So they granted the Queen what she wanted. Even after this, Tamar refused to punish her wayward ex-husband. Instead of imprisoning him she compensated for him for his troubles and sent him across the Black Sea to Constantinople, hoping that that would be the last that she would see of him. Unfortunately for them both, she was mistaken, but more on that next time. Free of her lecherous, deadbeat drunkard of her husband, Tamar set her sights on fully taking control of her kingdom. In that same year, the patriarch and chief minister that had been opposed on her when she took the throne died. Now that she was more secure in her position as queen, she was able to sack the men imposed upon her and appoint more loyal people. Her father had been known for hiring men based on merit rather than birth, and Tamar was keen to go back to that policy. This not only meant that more talented people were placed in high positions, but it also ensured greater loyalty, as they would have owed everything to her. That said, she was still careful to ensure a kind of balance in her minister's, ensuring that she kept various factions in check. This included men who had been close to her former husband and those who had been close to her cousin Demetrius, who, if you remember, had led that rebellion against her father in the 1170s. They were not in the key positions, but were close enough for her to keep an eye on them. And then next, once again, came the issue of her marriage. As the old saying goes, if at first you don't succeed try not marrying a deadbeat Russian this time. Of course, this time, the choice of husband was hers and hers alone, and she proved a far greater matchmaker than her nobles. Of course, as a ruling queen, there was quite a bit of competition for her hand in marriage, and the chroniclers seem to suggest a flood of offers of marriage coming in from all across the region. Indeed, reportedly, one suitor was so distraught at having been turned down by Tamar. That he was struck down dead from a broken heart. All the way over in Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor apparently was interested in marrying one of his sons off to Tamar, and even some Muslim rulers were in the game as well, with one offering his grandson who would convert to Christianity on marriage. Such offers of interreligious marriage are highly unusual at this time, so we can probably disregard that one. My favourite suitor, however, was the Sultan of Rum. A powerful Muslim state in central Anatolia. Rather than trying to woo Tamar, he tried the rather novel tactic of insulting her. Think of it as heavy nagging. His letter proposing marriage to her opened with quote, Every woman is feeble minded. His envoy also insisted that Tamar convert to Islam, otherwise, she would only be treated as a concubine. The envoy was sent back to the Sultan with a violent clip behind his ear and a promise that Tamar would pay back his insults with military force. The man she chose was somewhat close to home. Her aunt Rutadan was foster mother to a prince of Alania called David Soslan. Alania was where Tamar's mother and aunt came from, and was a small kingdom to the north of Georgia. By convention, its princes were raised and educated in the Georgian royal court, so Tamar had likely known David for some time. Like Tamar's ex, David was a strong military commander, but he was temperamentally far better suited. Unlike Yuri, he was happy to be her subordinate and to live by the rules of her court. In exchange for these terms, he was crowned King of Georgia in 1189. Tamar, of course, was still King of Kings, Queen of Queens. Not long after this, Tamar put final pay to her ex-husband's accusations that she was infertile by giving birth to a son and heir, Georgi, and shortly after to a daughter, Rustedan. Both of these children would one day rule over Georgia. David's military talents would come in very handy in the following years, as Tamar's Georgia would go on the offensive in the west and south, conquering a great deal of territory and cementing this period as being the height of George's Golden Age. But I'm afraid you'll have to wait until next time to find out about that. Until then, don't forget to follow the show on Twitter and Facebook, and talk to fellow listeners on the Lyceum app. Until then, stay safe, and I'll be back very soon.